0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel, and today I have the absolute, absolute pleasure of being in conversation with Dwai Banerjee, the author of Enduring Cancer, Life, Death and Diagnosis in Delhi, which was published by Duke University Press just a few months ago. Congratulations, Dwai, on this beautifully written and very, very interesting book. I, for one, could not put it down, and I've been recommending it to everyone I know. Thank you. Well, I thought we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, So I joined anthropology through a sort of roundabout route. Uh, My undergraduate degree was in literature in uh, Delhi University. And I enjoyed texts very, very much and uh, wanted to perhaps continue studying literature going forward. But there was this sort of dissonance because the way literature is set up in uh, Delhi and places like Delhi, like Calcutta, is that it's still rooted in a very old idea of what English literature is. So it's we more or less end before the 20th century begins. Um, and that, that has its colonial uh, roots and uh, colonial thinking about how to train uh, the native into a certain kind of English. So. As much as I enjoyed it, it felt completely divorced from the world around me. And there, uh, a move towards something like sociology and anthropology seemed to make a lot of sense. And that's how I basically ended up moving out of texts and into thinking more seriously about ethnography. But at the same time, trying to not leave behind what I enjoyed so much. And that comes through a little bit in the book because I still am very interested in cultural representations. Uh, in a way that uh, I hope to combine with ethnographic work
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's I think a great way to start talking about the book. and I think before we delve into the contents of the book, uh, I would love to know how was this book conceived or how did this project unfold? So this
1: book uh, really had not been conceived before it uh, the work for it started it, um, happened almost as an accident. So I uh, had begun working on a project in about studying the Bhopal gas disaster and its aftermath in uh, 30 years later. And I spent a lot of time in Bhopal living in the areas that uh, the survivors live in at the moment. But what I really found out very quickly was that this was an organization that had been very discursively sophisticated over its the, over the course of its um, history, and they really didn't need another anthropological voice to rephrase what they were already saying so well. And so uh, I, I decided to uh, switch my focus to other things, uh, a long theme in Indian anthropology and sociology has being uh, modes of dying and modes of attentiveness to the end of life. And so I thought maybe there's a big Supreme, case, uh, Supreme Court case going on about uh, a particular uh, judgment about what end of life constituted in the ICU. So I started working in the ICU and it, uh, trying to figure out what kind of moral and ethical and economic decision making uh, went into deciding to end or uh, keep a life alive. And uh, that was wonderful, but at the same time, really constrained because the space of the ICU is, is so different from other spaces in the hospital. It's so heavily controlled that it becomes really hard to do ethnographic work. And then I met these uh, uh, workers from this NGO that I uh, talk about and write about a lot. Uh, and I was really kind of taken by surprise that there was an organization that had been focusing... Uh, pretty much exclusively on the question of how to make life, uh, how to make dying a uh, peaceful or more uh, so more comfortable process for uh, their patients. And I was uh, taken by this. And I was also taken by the fact that they were, they were not alone. And uh, this had something to do with the fact that I'd been away from India for grad school for a few years at the time. Uh, uh, several of these organizations had, Uh, begun doing this kind of palliative care work. And that struck me as an interesting problem space. And uh, I I like how ethnography lets you sometimes take the questions from the field rather than bring the questions to the field. And this was very much an instance of that. I reshifted my focus, uh, trying to actually see what was important and what was going on from the point of view of uh, medical workers, caregivers, Uh, rather than bring my own set of preconceptions to it. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow, I really like the way you put it, and I'm definitely going to use that line about um, to the field um, when I'm teaching ethnography next. Uh, Well, the book, succinctly Put, is an exploration of how Delhi's urban poor deal with the cancer diagnoses, especially in the context of an overextended public health system. I loved how you note very early on in the book that there exists this popular conception in India that cancer is a lifestyle disease or a disease of the elite. More crucially, you argue that this conception is problematic for its consequences. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about the origin of this idea around cancer being an elite disease and what kinds of dangerous outcomes this gives rise to.
1: That's a great question. That's really the overarching frame of the book, even though I delve more ethnographically into other aspects of it. Uh, The, the, Discourse that I'm sure many of your listeners and uh, uh, and I really was attuned to was newspaper reporting around the disease in India, which constantly came back to the theme of what a good lifestyle looked like, uh, the question of whether red meat gives you cancer, whether cell phone does giving you cancer. These were the real uh, discursive tropes that seemed to be very apparent to, uh, in uh, just popular media. And that seemed a little odd to me because in framing it in that way, uh, it seemed to mean that cancer was something that only affected richer people or people who quote unquote were more westernized than the rest of the country. But the NGOs I were working with uh, it was immediately clear that that was a myth and that cancer is indiscriminate uh, towards class it affects uh, it affects the upper class and uh and the working class in exactly the same ways, uh, or at least not in its outcomes, but in its appearance. And so that became an interesting thing for me to track back historically a little bit. And looking back towards uh, the colonial archive, it was really fascinating to see that the same conversation we are having today about whether red meat gives you cancer or not was being discussed really uh energetically in the pages of the British Medical Journal before even the 20th century in the 1900s, uh, sorry, in the 1800s, where doctors, colonial doctors in the field were saying, uh, look, we see cancer all the time. Uh, There's there's not uh, any discrimination between cancer as a disease of the West versus a disease of the East. But the overarching global discourse about it was very much as we find it today that India might be different and actually probably doesn't have that much cancer because uh, it's vegetarian and if cancer has so much to do with these kinds of unhealthy practices. Uh, let's assume actually without evidence in this case that India is exempt from cancer. So that long history has had a really strong impact on, I think, on how the disease is still thought of now. Um, that doctors on the ground know that this is not true. But this trope of India and the East and now, if we call it the third world or the global South, not being as uh, affected by cancer as much as it is by other infectious diseases like malaria, TB, tuberculosis and so on. It's a very strong trope still. And I, I pay attention to this trope because of its consequences. Um, and the consequences basically are that since our independence and before that, During colonial, uh, during the way the colonial administration handled health, the emphasis has been so focused on uh, combating infectious diseases that diseases like cancer have been completely framed out of visibility, even though they are equally important to think about. And that's that's uh, that's where I try to kind of break the myth of this idea that cancer is a disease of the elite, and try to rethink with. Recent, recent shifts in public health that are kind of expressing their own mere culpa and saying, uh, we got it wrong maybe all this time and that lifestyle diseases are no, there is no such thing as that. And, uh, we, mu- we have to take chronic diseases as seriously as we do, uh, communicable diseases. And actually to just very quickly uh, wrap that up, the appearance of COVID in the United States is a way in which that discourse is being disrupted as we speak, where something that was supposed to be a problem of the uh, developing world, a pandemic of communicable uh, forms that uh, we in the US have probably, uh, were supposed to have gotten past that is thrown out for question again and so that's another way to think of the myth that the world that there are diseases of the rich and there are diseases of the poor that seems to be very much under doubt right now.
0: Wow yeah I had never quite thought of it that way but that's um, that's really interesting. I was actually thinking of this other uh, conversation that's also I think pretty popular in India that Indians have a certain amount of um, immunity to COVID because of their exposure to other kinds of communicable diseases in the past. So I don't know if you've encountered that, but that also seems to be um, a pretty predominant discourse in um, in India right now, that that explains the low death rate and so on and so forth. Um, but I mean, that's a conversation for another that time. Is, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the book, you focus on cancer pain and particularly the role of palliative care and its practice. I really enjoyed how you argued about the analytical value of thinking through pain. And I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about why thinking through cancer pain changes the way we think about the epistemological politics of this disease.
1: That's a great question. Again, I really uh, came to this while working with the NGO workers uh, that deal with uh, the the palliative care workers that I spent a lot of time with, who had as their slogan, uh, the idea that they wanted to add days to uh, they wanted to add life to days rather than days to life. And what that really means is that uh, their goal wasn't what we find it to be in the U.S. In at least public discourse in the U.S., where surviving the disease is what is truly at stake, and fighting it through uh, metaphors of battle and war is really what uh, uh, the disease is being constructed through U.S. history. Uh, very And not to get uh, not to digress too much, but uh, this was a very well thought out policy. The war on cancer was how it was officially dis- uh, described from the very beginning of its of the uh, kind of effort to deal with cancer in the 20th century. Um, but as many have written now, the, the, the metaphor of war has been really destructive in a way that we are only now beginning to realize. Susan Sontag realized this early on, but... Uh, very little has been done to address it so far. And that the metaphor basically is that the patient is just an agent uh, of uh, will or uh, a fighter, basically a soldier in this battle, where their pain is not what's at stake, but their ability to survive is. And so in a really strange way, when pain is almost always a Uh, not a side effect I don't want to call it a side effect but a companion of a cancer diagnosis Uh, very little has been to address done to address that even though that is what predominates the experience of a patient and so I don't want to make too strong a distinction between the east and west uh, here Uh, those are obviously discursive tropes but what I did find was that the palliative care NGOs in Delhi were really taking pain seriously in a way that uh, U.S. palliative care workers have found very difficult to find resources for. And so I think there was a lesson to be learned uh, and there it continues to be a lesson to be learned there. Uh, when I came back and talked to palliative, palliative care workers in the U.S., they were shocked that this work was actually being funded and taken out, being carried out systematically in a place where they imagined the resource uh, crunch would mean that there would be no resources left over for something like this. So in a really interesting way, uh, India has become the kind of center of this pain epidemic, quote-unquote, as it is called, uh, because there I'm, I'm shifting a little bit here to another discourse, which is that... Uh, we need uh, th- there's a uh, growing understanding in global public health that we need to understand the phenomena of pain as a disease in the developing world, and this is sort of hypocritical because it doesn't take account of the absence of its accounting in the in the United States, for example. Uh, but in this in this discourse, India is taken as the epicenter of the of the pain epidemic, quote unquote, and its numbers are often used to. Uh, basically make a case that there's this untreated disease that we are only now taking account of and we now need to treat. Uh, And that kind of fit in well with what I was thinking about uh, in relation to cancer. Uh, What does it mean to kind of focus on pain as an epidemic in itself? Uh, Why is India the place uh, these questions are being centred? And what do we really have to learn from the way in which some palliative care NGOs and anesthesiologists in Delhi are uh, doing, which is taking really seriously this condition, not just as a side effect, but as a object of intervention in itself. What does that maybe have to tell us about the need to reframe how cancer is thought about elsewhere in the world, the global north also, for example?
0: Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, really well summarized, I think, and very, very interesting. Uh, In chapter one, you explore through rich ethnographic data how concealment is so key to the way a cancer diagnosis is dealt with by patients, their kin, but also doctors and caregivers, um, and also the group that you were working with ethnographically. Uh, You argue against the idea of concealment or non-disclosure as a failure of medical practice, and conceive of concealment practices amongst your interlocutors as questioning the very binary between disclosure and non-disclosure. I was really so taken by this argument and I invite you to say a little more about, as you yourself put it, the dangers and desires around non-disclosure as being intimately relational.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's a really important question I uh, thought I needed to address because it was everywhere. One of the preconditions for me to work with the NGO was that I would never really use the I was I was to never really use the word cancer in anybody's presence. And that was a fascinating first ethnographic insight that the this was an NGO that uh, was solely focused on treating the effects of cancer. But they were telling me that cancer is a word that we need to be very careful about around our patients. And this is not unknown elsewhere in the world, but I was taken by why and under what conditions this might really have a particular life in the context I was working in. And so there's an interesting way for me where concealment becomes a anthropological problem where uh, it exists in different forms around diseases all over the world but it also has its own locality and particularity in the ways that it shapes in relation to particular stresses of kinship and economics and geography. Uh, So to put it more concretely, every visit that I, uh, uh, every patient that I visited with the cancer support team, every patient I encountered at the hospital I worked with, uh, there was this really sophisticated game of talking about the disease without naming the disease. And that became a terrain of language that I thought I needed to really explore. Uh, and what became clear quite quickly was that not talking about the disease wasn't a marker of ignorance or denial, as it is termed in the uh, oncology, psycho-oncology, global public health literature. But it was really a way to manage the effects of the disease by dispersing it through social relations rather than putting it on one patient and one patient only. What do I mean by that? There would, there would often be packs between families and doctors to not, to not let the patient know. But of course, a patient going through chemotherapy and radiotherapy with signages that say cancer hospital often and inevitably figure out what's going on. And they themselves do not use the word to take care of their uh, kin who are not using the word to take care of them. And so it becomes a really complex and sophisticated uh, choreography of language, basically, where uh, to 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 say how much to say, when to say, how to say, what not to say is how care is often transacted, and that I found a really fascinating I found to be a really fascinating antidote to the where to the uh, to the tendency in public health to talk about silence as just denial. I found silence to be a really sophisticated mechanism through which speech was actually being managed rather than put aside.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking about social relations, in uh, chapter two, you explore the strain of a cancer diagnosis on social relations along a very different tack by focusing on conjugal relations within the household. Can you tell us a little bit about how you began to focus on conjugal relations and what attending to these relations tells us about the gendered implications of living with cancer
1: sure yeah uh, chapter 2 came out of wanting to think very seriously about how kinship plays into a diagnosis because i was watching how in in the hospital as well as well as with cancer care workers uh, a lot of the talk was about how families would be able to uh, either sustain, bolster, or harm a patient's well-being when a cancer diagnosis was, uh, appear, uh, a cancer diagnosis appeared. And so thinking about kinship anthropologically in relation to India, a lot of excellent work has focused on the way in which the conjugal pair itself has to be suppressed in order to make clear the primacy of the wider family unit. So there are many ways in which anthropologists have documented that the conjugal uh, relationship itself is uh, n- is muted, so that the relationship between two families, the relationship between uh, and across the kin networks, become much more important in a way that conjugality is dismissed. And what happens? So that that that's something that was something I knew going in, but what I noticed after I went in and started noticing the dynamics around the family uh, was that conjugality was inescapable when one of the two members, uh, one of the two members of the conjugal pair was uh, so seriously impaired. And it became really interesting for me to track how impairment, when it occurred in men, shifted the balance of gender hierarchy in these very particular and subtle ways. So Wives who had often been disenfranchised, uh, just by the fact of being, uh, in the household of their uh, final kin, um, did not, uh, were able to exert a really subtle w- w- way, a, a subtle, uh, uh, mode of agency in how they took care of their husbands who had often been really violent to them, who had often been abusive. And the care that they extended was similarly a very complex breeding of care with violence. So they would find ways to bring past histories of their own victimization to the surface in a way that their husbands would be ashamed by. They would find ways to maybe mix up their dosages of the medicine in a way that would hurt their husbands at the same time as they were the sole reason that their husbands remained alive in the first place. And this complex way of dealing with uh, care, which is often really kind of uh, intuitively thought of as good, as something that that is a result of empathy and a thing that helps people live better, uh, care for me became a much more loaded and much more complicated word and uh, concept where it really showed up violence in the process of its transaction uh, and past histories of violence that could surface in moments of one person's uh, need for care and the other person's ability to give it, which often, of course, mapped around uh, lines of gender.
0: hmm yeah, and um, you know, in in this vein, Chapter Three uh, demonstrated the ongoing research and conversations around medical practitioners around the issue of how to treat cancer pain, which I guess one could read as a form of care. Um, you show how an emphasis on empathy ex- exists alongside uh, an understanding of structural inequalities. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the kinds of hypothetical and speculative social worlds that medical practitioners construct in their attempts to treat cancer pain while articulating the infrastructural elements uh, of doing so? Yeah, I really like the way how you
1: frame that question because I hadn't actually thought specifically about the medical practitioners actually speculating themselves in the way patients were speculating, uh, as I described earlier on, in creating these worlds, which I call uh, subjunctive worlds, uh, worlds of as if, where they could live with the disease without necessarily needing to name it. Um, this was another way I think speculation enters into the picture. Uh, and the speculation is about how Indian bodies particularly are responsive uh, to the disease in ways that do not map onto global uh, tropes. And that discourse is about a particular kind of resilience that Indian bodies might have, uh, that other uh, cultures do not have the capacity for. And that capacity is basically linked to an old colonial discourse about Indian asceticism, Indian resilience to pain, uh, the fact that in these uh, religious ceremonies, people were able to uh, perform these feats of uh, uh, withstanding pain that became spectacular demonstrations of Indian difference. Uh, That, I think, has carried over in the present in a really interesting way, which is that uh, the emerging discipline of psycho-oncology in India, which is basically psychiatrists taking interest in the implications of cancer, uh, took to task the idea that denial was always a bad thing. Uh, the, the consensus elsewhere in the world that to deny that you have a disease will hurt you badly uh, was something they did not take for granted. They took that up as a problem to investigate. And then the most interesting thing started happening, which was they tried to quantitatively map something like karma or belief in rebirth uh, to the way in which uh, a patient experienced pain and the degree to which a patient experienced pain. So the, the the desire for their research was to kind of mine this so-called possibility that Indians have this particular capacity for pain uh, to mobilize that in response to the way in which uh, pain was ever present in uh, their experiences of professional work. Um, So that's one aspect of it. There was this kind of speculative world they built around uh, this idea of Indian resilience. I think in a way, they they wouldn't say it in this way, but I think they were responding in a way To how Indian healthcare has really failed the patients they're talking about. So why is pain such a predominant problem? Because it comes often at later stages of the disease and in India, the patients that we, uh, the patients I saw uh, were often, uh, were almost uh, uh, more more often than not, 84% of the time uh, for an approximate number, uh, appearing for uh, treatment far past the time of Uh, curative intervention. So because they were seeing this uh, epidemic uh, of pain, uh, they were responding to it in the best way that they could. But this did not take into account the structural ways in which patients had not been able to get diagnoses earlier on, had been denied the kind of basic public health resources that are required to catch cancer early on and to treat it curatively. Uh, so I thought it was a really interesting speculative response that did not, unfortunately, end up addressing the core question at stake for me, which was how to get to curative uh, intervention in the first place and not uh, shift the question onto pain uh, and only focus on pain. Um, uh, to just kind of uh, wrap that up, what I'm describing so far is the research literature that they were producing and that I saw a lot of cancer uh, uh cancer workers, cancer researchers uh, invest themselves in. But I also noticed a really big gap between all the speculation and research and the one-to-one ethnographic knowledge that the doctors had over uh, 20, 30 years of their teaching. And this was very much at odds with this uh, thinking in these broad cultural terms of our patients. In the actual encounters that pain specialists had with their doctors, they did exactly what ethnographers do, which is take, up, take account of kinship, take account of family dynamics, take up, take account of patients past in you know, order to understand how and why they felt pain in a certain kind of way and how much they felt. And when they were able to diagnose these familial dynam- dynamics as well as uh, the disease itself, they were able to do things like reduce people's morphine dosages by half because they intervened into the fabric of their social world as much as they intervened into their bodies. Mm -hmm. And this I found to be a really humbling uh, experience, where it's so easy for an anthropologist to come from the outside and critique doctors for saying, uh, for not being able to deal with structural problems. They were doing something different, and they they were doing it really well. Um, But it didn't quite align with the work, the research work that they were doing. And it it shouldn't as as I as much as I say that it shouldn't be left up to patients and their own uh, will and their sheer ability to fight the disease. Neither should it be left to doctors to figure this out because this is a much larger structural problem in Indian uh, public health, which has been chronically underfunded since independence, uh, doctors end up doing what they can do, which is de- develop one-to-one relationships and do the best they can within those relationships. But when they're dealing with 150 patients a day, they are absolutely uh, left without the resources to deal with cancer as a structural problem. So they do what they do, which is empathize. But I do not see that empathy as the answer to how cancer should be dealt with and can be dealt with in the country.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, So now moving on to uh, the rest of the book where you juxtapose your ethnographic insights uh, gleaned in the previous chapters with analyses of cultural representation of cancer in India. um, I I was, uh, you know, specifically you think through the differences uh, in the ways in which memoirs and films have uh, come to discuss the disease and its manifestations. But before we get into the content of these chapters, I would love it if you could say a little bit about what this sort of uh, juxtaposition of uh, cultural representations with ethnographic and historical data affords you as an anthropologist. Um, I ask this as someone who's been playing around with the idea for a while now, and I'm sure lots of other researchers who are unable to continue their fieldwork due to COVID, uh, would they would love to know more.
1: I know it's become something that I'm dealing with with my own students and trying to retool their projects in the light of what's going on. But this was a earlier moment in which uh, it wasn't out of exigency as much as it was out of a desire to really take seriously how my interlocutors thought and dealt with the disease. And that is supposed to be what anthropologists do, right? That the, the idea is that anthropology is a discipline that takes belief and, uh, Cultural uh, systems much more seriously than other disciplines might, uh, such as global health. Uh, But at the same time, anthropology hasn't escaped the trap of imposing a very ham-handed set of uh, ideas about culture upon the places that it studies. So, what do I mean by that? Um, For a for a long time, anthropologists took on the authority of, and I'm thinking of medical anthropology in general of Telling people what was going on rather than listening to what was going on through uh, the creative work that people themselves were doing in interpreting their situation. And of course, this, uh, the anthropological attention to what people do rather than what people say absolutely is an important uh, distinction and em- emphasis. It gets us past discourse. It gets us into practice. But taken too far, it gets us into a uh, problematic space where we forget that people themselves are uh, expert representers of their own worlds. And this is a a fundamental insight that Clifford Geertz in the 1970s came to, that we really need to take the representations of the people we study seriously, uh, culture almost as a text rather than as a physical or or a face-to-face artifact. And I'm, I'm still very taken about thinking of culture in that way, because uh, in today's discourse around anthropology of trying to decolonize it, I think it's particularly important in this decolonizing project uh, to think of knowledges that are being co-produced alongside us as we do our ethnographic fieldwork. And so why isn't the author writing about uh, their disease and the experiencing, experience with the disease? Why isn't a filmmaker who's made four films uh, uh, taking cancer as their central concept uh, as equally uh, competent in representing and understanding culture as we are and how do we place our texts in conversation with theirs. I don't think they're doing it right and we're doing it wrong or we're doing it right or they're doing it wrong. Uh, I think they're parallel texts, parallel interpretations that really work uh, when you place them together in all its conflict as well as its dissonances.
0: hmm Yeah, I think that's uh, really well put. And um, to just take one of the chapters, chapter five, which is on cancer films, and I will say that I'm very partial to the chapter on films because I have watched and enjoyed almost all of the Bollywood films you draw on. Um, And, you know, reading this chapter was an absolute delight as I saw these films in a very different light. Uh, But I was intrigued by your discussion around two issues, right? So on the one hand, you note that the films that you're analyzing have often been critiqued for almost romanticizing death, as opposed to telling perhaps more accurate stories of survival and recovery, and that this is deemed by doctors as being detrimental to the psychological well-being of patients. On the other hand, many of the cancer films braid issues around sacrifice, kinship, and most interestingly of the post-colonial nation in a very potent and heady combination. Could you walk us through how these two issues of pathos, melodrama, and the post-colonial nation... Animate your thinking around cancer and its impact on fragile social worlds.
1: That's a great question, and this came very late in the writing of the book. To be honest, I mm-hmm. just started watching films after I conducted my ethnography, and I was really—it was really clear that I didn't want to think of these films as just another aspect of what my ethnographic world uh, was telling me. These were very much uh, sophist- they, these were sophisticated interpretations rather than evidence of the worlds I wanted to study. And the interpretations uh, that the films thought pathos to be the central focus of their interpretive work struck me as really, really interesting because it immediately makes you think, as an anthropologist located in the United States, of the discourse of survival and optimism that cancer is wrapped within in the United States. Uh, What does it mean to not fall into the... Uh, obvious desire to recuperate a patient's agency and their happiness and their cheerfulness and do the other thing which is to look at how it is a disease that takes away one's ability to be optimistic sometimes uh, that does challenge a patient's belief in their world and the relations that they live within and I think I thought that to be a very sophisticated interpretation of social relations around cancer because for me, I saw time and again that these relations were not, uh, not just left un- undisrupted. They were thrown up for grabs in very interesting ways. Uh, and so that brings me to pathos. Why, why were so many of the films that I was seeing in the 50, from the 50s and 60s and 70s in particular, uh, extremely uh, wrapped up in this register of uh, the the disposition of uh, despondency that the disease brings about without any desire to jump into this idea of surviving against all odds. That wasn't at all the discourse around what the films were trying to project. In fact, patients would almost always die in these films rather than survive. Um, and that... Became something that was at odds not only with how it's uh, how cancer is trying to be represented uh, in the survivorship discourse in the United States. It was also something doctors didn't like at all. They thought that this was communicating a bad message, that this was telling patients that they had no chance, and that was a demoralizing thing. But I but but I'm but I'm a little bit wary of thinking about it in that way, when the experience of patients is often one of how to deal with death in Uh, after a cancer diagnosis given that uh, interventions are almost always too late and more than that what does it mean to take seriously the way in which cancer uh, throws up these affects of um, uh, let's say pathos but let's also include uh, melodrama in this Uh, what does it mean for cancer to challenge the traditional tropes of representation. In my fieldwork, that was language. In the films, it is the register of speech, which again is not easily available. The films, as much as uh, the everyday life I was interested in, were very careful about not using the word in itself. Uh, and they did this elaborate dance around the world, word, to a different end. And that end, I think, was um, to take seriously how uh, the disease was appearing in a particular uh, post-colonial... They were representing the disease in a particular moment in time and place in history. Uh, And so what was that time and place in history? 50s, 60s, 70s. India was uh, a time of uh, post-colonial... Both uh, post-colonial... Uh, ambition and hope as well as its as well as a steady decline in that hope being fulfilled. And cancer, as, with its affective terrain uh, intersected really interestingly with that, where the first set of films were all about how uh, in the 50s and 60s, cancer would be one of the things the new nation state would tackle uh, with the uh, ethos of sacrifice and selfless, selflessness. Uh, that doctors shared with engineers, the new builders of the Indian nation. Um, and that uh, self-sacrifice of doctors uh, became a running theme that I found interesting to track. But it introduced another element, which was that in this uh, capacity for doctors to sacrifice themselves, often to the point of their own death, uh, the doctors were often male, And the sacrifices they made left... Uh, women in really difficult places uh, with very difficult choices to make. Uh, and with it, without going into too much detail, uh, I'll just say that there was another terrain of sacrifice that the films are much more subtly aware of, which was the way in which women had no place and no ability to uh, give their own lives over to the sake of the nation. It could only be through the male doctor protagonist that they could make their own sacrifices. And there's a way to, and that's why I think melodrama is the mode that filmmakers choose to represent this, because there's a kind of, uh, uh, knee-jerk understanding of melodrama as something that is not the right register or not the best uh, aesthetic register to work with. It's taken as crass, dismissed alike by film critics and audiences alike sometimes. But what I think melodrama shows us here is that uh, in its emphasis on the, uh, the excess of affect in the way that emotions overflow speech and language, it takes us into a place where we see Often, women protagonists uh, lose their minds, fall into uh, 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 complete uh, fall into silence and shock. That tells us something about the way in which uh, uh, women's agency often is available through these acts of silence and these acts of uh, not speaking, rather than being able to speak. And it requires us to pay attention to melodrama as a mode that takes away language in favor of an overflow and excess of emotion, uh, that really kind of uh, takes us, uh, to to be very clear, takes us into a world where misrecognition is always the problem uh, for women in uh, these representations. They are not allowed a place to be recognized as uh, uh, equally capable to sacrifice uh, their selves for the sake of the nation. Uh, But melodrama opens up understanding their sacrifice in a different register, uh, which is through, which is not through language, which is through an excess and overflow of uh, their emotional uh, capacities.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, just the richness of that answer, I think, indicates why this was my favorite chapter in the book or like one of my favorite chapters in the book. But thank you for that. Um, Well, finally, you end the book with thinking through the politics of uh, studying both suffering and endurance, I would be thrilled if you could comment on how you think about endurance, not just as a mode of inhabiting a precarious world, but as an object of anthropological inquiry.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's a fascinating question to me, because it's a question that uh, my discipline is grappling with, um, in the sense that medical anthropology has often dealt with illness, right, and very often, uh, very extreme forms of suffering. Uh, and a growing critique against this version of medical anthropology has been that it's been too preoccupied with the suffering almost to a fetishistic fetishistic extent it's a really fascinating critique I read where uh, uh, one uh, an, another anthropologist uh, of uh, gender takes up the medical, preoccup- medical anthropological preoccupation with suffering itself as an object of ethnographic inquiry, and where uh, he uses uh, sadomasochism as a trope, as a psychoanalytic trope to see and critique this medical anthropological preoccupation with time and again representing suffering and suffering and suffering. And the move against this has been to uh, imagine what an anthropology of hope might look like. And this is more recent work, uh, really uh, self-consciously in uh, opposition to this older mode and attentiveness to suffering, which says we must must look for projects of hope, of aspiration, of self-making and move away from this disciplinary obsession with how bad things are everywhere. Um, and i'm I'm taken by this because I do find this obsession with suffering a little troubling ex- especially when we really have no answers to offer most of the time uh, and I am taken by this idea of finding projects of self-making uh, in the worlds of the inter- interlocutors that we live uh, and talk with but at the same time I think, that project runs a danger of taking for granted what suffering is and what self-making is in the first place. And then uh, relegating projects that look like self-suffering as inessential, as just a giving in. I'm interested in thinking about projects of suffering and uh, to shift that register from suffering to endurance as itself a very sophisticated way to make and live and inhabit. A, and not a giving up of one's world, but a way to rethink how one might live in a world that is not shaped uh, for one's livability, and that be, became the uh, the kind of overarching way in which I began to understand the book towards the end of my writing. Uh, there was no uh, there was no easy answer for me in uh, redemptive uh, rise up uh, rising up together against the disease and. Uh, lack of treatment in the way that uh, the HIV AIDS uh, activist movement really uh, offered a, a real political answer to. There were no uh, no similar political activist work being done in that register. So what 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 was the politics of what I was looking at? And th- that politics to me is uh, to take seriously the work that needs to be done by our interlocutors, to stay the same in a world that is deteriorating very fast around them, to even uh, remain plastically responsive to the way in which power shapes and reshapes and deforms their world. And that seems like a sort of depressing project to just, and a project that just gives up on the idea of uh, agency completely. Uh, I hope that's not where it ends up. Uh, but I think... I think, if taken seriously, it actually offers a way to not dismiss our interlocutors' experiences as just trapped, being trapped in a world, but as shaping their worlds in really sophisticated ways that we still haven't really sufficiently understood as anthropologists. What political projects come out of this? I don't know. And that's the, project, that's the question I really want to uh, see unfold uh, in its own way. Uh, but there is no simple political answer to this. I do not, I don't know whether this, whether this uh, capacity to endure necessarily leads to a politics of uh, contestation around the way in which public health has been structured. Uh, but I don't want to leave it to the side and say that this is not important. I think it's very important. And if you're to build a po- po- politics around this, uh, we have to understand what's going on in the first place. So to give a very quick example of that, uh, if we don't understand how people are negotiating silence and speech around the disease, we'll never be able to build a collective uh, around the disease in a way that uh, there has to be a kind of discursive uh, terrain of uh, uh, commonness that brings patients together. So if we're to bring patients together, we have to understand why patients are not able to be together, why they're not able to express and articulate their uh, uh, their experience in language, but they are expressive and uh, articulate in other ways. And how might we mobilize those other ways in thinking about what a politics around cancer might look like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I found it to be a very compelling and provocative way to sort of end uh, this, this book. So um, yeah, thanks for writing this sort of a provocative conclusion, but um, also summing it up so well uh, right now. Well, before we let you go, I'm sure we would—I uh, would love to know what are you working on currently, and what might we expect to see from you in the near future.
1: Thanks for asking that, because that is something I'm preoccupied with now in a uh, really obsessive way. Uh, it's it's really different in some ways from what I've done, what I've done in this book, uh, but of course I'll try to make a narrative about how there's some in which it's not completely different. So I'm looking at the early history of computing in India in the 1950s, right at the decolonial moment. And what's fascinating to me is now, of course, we know the uh, discourse around India and computing, which is that it produces the cheap labor, uh, produces the cheap labor force, which is technologically literate, uh, as the back end for the more sophisticated technological work being done uh, in the US, in Europe. Uh, so here we there's this kind of talk especially now around visas about uh how Indians have been uh, exploiting this kind of uh, uh, setup where they are able to produce not expertise but uh cheap and uh, uh very uh, the ability to do uh repetitive and boring work for very little money and uh, that's that's the kind of commonsensical way in which uh, uh, I find the discourse around computing uh, structured globally. Now, looking back to the history was really fascinating for me uh, because in the work of some of the early scientists, physicists uh, that I'm following, um, there was no such uh, division in their mind. They weren't thinking of themselves as limited as uh, the back end in a way that it seems obvious now. So they wanted to develop research and expertise at par and at the same time with uh, the United States. So the first computer that I'm really interested in tracking was built very much exactly at the same time and was equally sophisticated as the work being done in the United States in the immediate post-war period. And so what has happened to that history is uh, what I'm curious about. Why have we uh, taken for granted that... We exist in this time that is uh, behind the progress that the U.S. has made. Uh, And why is there, uh, what happened to that hope in the uh, immediate post-independence moment where the scientists, physicists I was working with absolutely denied this narrative of progress uh, uh, in which they were put at the back and uh, where the rest of the world was something they had to catch up with. they didn't even think that they had anything to catch up with. They thought they were doing the same uh, sophisticated, abstract mathematical research that needed to be done uh, in order to uh, be scientifically uh, the, uh, scientifically taken seriously uh, or, uh, in the global context. And they did it. And that's that, that's what is fascinating to see, that they were able to make the machines, but something happened through the 70s and 80s where... Uh, all these efforts began to fall apart and we became the outsourcing hub that we are today. Um, And that's the question I'm following. And I'm following it in a way because, uh, and here's the very tenuous link to uh, the work that I've done. Uh, What is this narrative of uh, modernization uh, that we're still caught within and cancer very much so, where so much of the discourse is that cancer is becoming a problem in India because it is modernizing too fast and it's Aping the lifestyles of the West. Uh, It's a a difficult uh, uh, relationship where there is a lot of desire. It isn't that the discourse isn't that we should leave, uh, we should modernize differently. It's just how do we sort of uh, make these blows of modernization slightly softer so we can benefit from the rest of it. Now, what I'm interested in is is in thinking of a scientific modernism rather than a modernization. Uh, What do I mean by that? What I find really interesting in the work in the 50s and 60s uh, is that uh, unlike how we often think of that time in India, where modernization seems to be absolutely the key to thinking of the developmental state, not just in India, in Egypt, in many parts of the deco- decolonizing world, uh, there is this get- taken for granted notion that all these countries were basically trying to catch up uh, in the same way, in the same linear historical time, uh, as the West had already uh, 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 experienced through the Industrial Revolution. Taking, uh, looking at the work by physicists and mathematicians and uh, computer scientists at this time, I find a very different idea of what they thought their place in the scientific world was. And I think of that as a scientific modernism, uh, because as um, mod as anyone interested in literature or uh, uh, or um, cultural production will know immediately, modernism has always had a very fraught relationship with modernization. It has been the cultural product of modernization in a way that has never been comfortable with, with itself. So modernism has always questioned technological progress at the same time as it's taken it as a fact that they have to live within a grapple. So, what does a modernism of that sort, of the sort that Eliot or Pound or Yeats were uh, grappling with in uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the in Europe, what does that look like when we think of that in uh, India uh, through the perspective of scientists? And so, the first chapter of this book will begin with thinking of these scientists and their relationship, conveniently for me, with artists of the time, so I'm going on and on, but I'll try and uh, say this very succinctly. Uh, One of the places I'm looking at is is, uh, the Data Institute for Fundamental Research in Bombay. Uh, It was the leading, uh, it is and remains one of the leading uh, sites of fundamental basic research in physics, math and computer uh, computer science. And uh, in the 50s, so I I began to do field work, uh, archival research there. Uh, last summer, and as soon as I walked in, all around me, there were paintings by the most, uh, expensive, uh, contemporary Indian artists you can imagine. M.F. Osin, S.H. Raza, uh, uh, Thayv Mehta, B.S. Tonde, just hanging around, like just behind uh, the teapot of, a, uh, of the canteen was a Gaitande. Over the photocopier machine, there was uh, a really expensive and massive Raza. And that was just, that made no sense. TFR is also producing, uh, is part of the nuclear research uh, world, so nobody can actually go in. No one of foreign origin can go in. I had to get all these clearances, get past uh, Army Barricade, and i come in and see basically the best collection of Indian modern art that exists in the world. And so I was just, what's going on here was the question for me, and that was what kind of led to my project. And I realized then that there was this moment in Bombay in the fifties and sixties that can't be reduced to the national project to the developmentalist project. Uh, The founder of the institute, Homi Baba, who was a painter of his own right, decided to create a world of aesthetic freedom for artists in the fifties because of which we have in Indian modernism as it is today. Hussein was dangling is a famous story of uh, how uh, Hussein, one of one of maybe India's most famous painters, uh, met um, met another painter and how they started. The movement that I write about in the first chapter, Hussein was uh, uh, penniless. He was hanging from very precariously from a billboard uh, with paint dangling, paint uh, pain dangling from his toes. All the paint brushes on his ears, hanging on with one hand, with painting with another. And uh, Souza, who's another famous artist from that period until now, uh, found him doing this, and both penniless, living on the streets. Uh, uh, Raza similarly uh, just decided that what they would do were, was invent a completely new Indian art, uh, Indian modernism uh, and, com- and only take uh, Picasso and Rembrandt as their reference points and completely uh, put tradition and the past to one side and this was fascinating so what do we have here? We have Homi Baba a painter and a physicist of his own right Building a developmental estate, but convincing Nehru to give him 1% of the budget for TFR purely for the purpose of creating Indian modernism. And so taking these painters and bringing them into uh, the global limelight that they enjoy today, Hussain very quickly started uh, exhibiting around, uh, alongside Picasso, thanks to uh, these interventions. Um, what was going on in this world where these artists just said, no, we are not developmentally backward. We will not take on uh, the idiom of the folk just because the West demands it of us. We will talk about uh, modernism in the same breath as the West is. And we will be at and in the same historical moment. And we have the same claims to abstraction uh, that anyone else does. And the physicists said the same thing. We are not going to do a different kind of physics in India just because we have uh, a different, uh, we were uh, colonized. We are going to, at the very moment, uh, think about solar rays and cosmic rays coming in from the rest of the universe uh, at the same time as the, the physics community in Europe is. And mm-hmm. uh, to wrap, this is, I'm going on and on. Because this is no, fascinating, it's
0: fine. It's totally fine.
1: fascinating for me, but to wrap it up is to say that uh, it were, what does it mean to take this even as a failed project, seriously, this idea, this really stubborn resistance to thinking of, of uh, modernization and say that no, uh, we are and have always been on the same historical time as the rest of the world. Um, and we have a claim to the view from nowhere that the rest of the scientific world has. And this is an interesting kind of place to end up as STS scholar. The view from nowhere is uh, something that we critique. We always try to say that science is placed in a social uh, world, and the privilege of uh, presuming that you are talking out of abstraction is a privilege we need to question. What happens when these artists living on the streets, these physicists with very little funding, make a post-colonial claim to that view, view from now, nowhere and say we will live only in the world of the extreme abstract. We will never draw a figure because that has been demanded of us. The colonial art teachers told us we were incapable of figuration. We will put that to one side. We will not uh, give in to figuration, to proving to them that we can do figurative work. We will jump straight into the stream of history and Work only through the most abstract physics, math, and art possible. What does that sort of refusal mean uh, in today's world, where outsourcing has ended up putting us squarely back in what they refused in this uh, in this kind of narrative of catching up, of being behind, but uh, always one step uh, backwards from where the rest of
0: I mean, this all sounds really, really exciting, but I think the best part about you talking about your project is that your enthusiasm is contagious, honestly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm really looking forward to uh, to reading more. And I'm sure everyone else who's listening in on this is excited to read what comes of this, um, but all the very best with that. And uh, I also want to say thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have.
1: Thank you. And it's really been a pleasure to talk about this in the middle of the pandemic where sometimes it feels like the book has dropped in the forest and it doesn't make a sound. So thank you very much.
0: Of course. And yeah, take care.